Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by this message, we hope you'll share it with a friend and subscribe to our podcast. Or best of all, come visit us at church. For directions, service times, and more info, check out newstorychurch.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. I was volunteering this past weekend. We had a great time at the LA Food Bank, Lincoln Heights Health Fair yesterday. Whole bunch of things going on. I want to welcome everyone here to New Story Church. My name is Tom, in case we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we are in part two of a series that we are calling We Love Jesus. We actually, you guys fell for it again. No, we do love LA, uh, but we love Jesus first and we love LA especially because Jesus loves LA so much. This is a series that's really encouraging everyone to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ as we get out of our church seats uh, and into the streets of LA. So we're going to have a lot of fun doing that as we love this city. Uh, No strings attached. Now, if you're tuning in for the first time, maybe you were away last week, I, I, know, I know different people were away and whatnot, maybe you're listening online for the first time right now, hey, here's the deal, let me give you the big idea of this entire series. Our uh, one year anniversary is just right around the corner, believe it or not, uh, New Story Church uh, as, a, as a church itself uh, is just, uh, just about a year old, uh, and uh, that's, it's been an incredible year. It's been an incredible year of the Lord's favor, uh, so many good things that we need to celebrate, uh, and we're we're going to do that. The scripture talks about how uh, the people of God need to celebrate the things of God. Uh, and so we're going to do that for sure on October 20th. Uh, but we thought, you know what, what would it be like if we also, not just threw a party for ourselves and celebrated, uh, but what would it be like if for like three, four weeks before that, we threw a sort of block party? And we just loved on the city that we've been called to, that we've been situated in uh, by God, uh, by just uh, spreading the love of Jesus. Like, what would it look like if for four weeks, three weeks right before, um, we started cleaning the streets of L.A.? What would it look like if we started feeding the hungry in Jesus' name? What would it look like if we just started loving the homeless? So way back in the beginning of the year, around January and February, as we were started kind of discussing and praying and dreaming and thinking through these things, uh, we connected with different local churches and ministries and organizations, and we identified over the course of months uh, over 300 service opportunities uh, to serve. And now, actually, uh, I strike that it's over 400 uh, service opportunities to love LA in Jesus' name, no strings attached. So, can we just thank God for that? That's a Herculean effort. God has been so faithful, so good. So I'm just curious now, how many of you uh, either served yesterday at one of the outreaches, or maybe you took a box and you filled it at home, maybe you got your small group together, uh, maybe your kids together, and you, and you filled a box for, for hungry children, or maybe you gave financially, or maybe uh, you haven't had that opportunity yet, but, but you, you, you signed up and you're going to serve at one of our future projects. I'm just curious uh, how many of you have already taken those steps. Let's see a, a some hands here of, of people that have already participated. Okay, look around, look around. That's like about over 60, 70%. So good, so good. Uh, praise God. I want to show you uh, one particular small group. Uh, this was just on, on social media yesterday. This is a group in South Bay. And uh, from, from young little kids to old people like Kyungo, who's our executive director there, uh, we got the whole range. Sorry, Kyungo, if you're in the room. Uh, we got the whole range of people just loving on Jesus. Uh, they, I think they filled like 16 boxes or something like that. 
Uh, that's part of the, the, the hundreds of boxes that you see outside those sanctuary doors. Uh, so one more time, can we just give God a round of applause for what he's doing? So good. So good. Uh, now, it is Sunday. I am a pastor. This is church. So I have to ask you a serious uh, question. You may need to confess your sins. Uh, how many of you took a box last week but did not return it for whatever reason this week? Raise your hand. Repent. <laughs> Repent right there, okay? Next week, I'll bring two boxes, all right? No, but seriously, uh, thank you so much. Uh, wh whether you took a box and, 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 and your heart is to serve or you have served, thank you so much for everyone here putting your faith into action. You see, this is the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a church uh, that puts our faith into action. You see, actually, part of our vision for this series, and even larger uh, for this entire church, is to fall deeper in love with Jesus. And as we fall deeper in love with Jesus, to reach out to others in his name, particularly here in L.A. County. And so every time we do something like this, where we get out of our seats and into the streets, I believe it takes us one step closer uh, to the heart of God. And that's what this series is about. That's actually what our church is about. Speaking of which, uh, the title of our message today, for those of you taking notes, is Love Your Neighbor. Love Your Neighbor. It's very basic, but it's anything but generic. Uh, we're going to focus on a fascinating little scene in the New Testament where Jesus is actually teaching this principle. He taught this principle often, but in this one particular scene, he's teaching the principle of love your neighbor. And guess what happens? This hater calls him out. Like this hater, right, totally calls Jesus out. And uh, I have to admit, it gets a little awkward. Like the passage we're about to read, it's an awkward passage, which, by the way, I love. I don't know why, maybe I'm socially awkward, but I just love these awkward moments, especially when I find them in the Bible, because I don't know about you, but for me, what that does is it validates the truth of Scripture even more. See, in other words, if, if I were someone that was trying to concoct a religious text, if I were someone that was just making something up, I would gloss over, or actually, I would leave out all the awkward parts, you know what I'm saying, that, that make the religion or the philosophy or the ideology kind of hard to swallow. I would, I would gloss over these things, but Scripture, <laughs> Scripture doesn't do that at all. God's Word doesn't do that. So it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they're all in Scripture. See, despite whatever you think about what a religious text should sound like, the Bible is full of surprises. And so what I've done is I've asked my friend Sarah, Sarah, come on up. Sarah's going to come. Yeah, let's give her a hand. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah, you got some fans. All right. I've asked her to come on up. And she's going to read for us the key passage today. It's found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. By the way, I say this all the time. This is not your mama's church. So you are actually allowed to have your phone out. You're allowed to use your phone throughout the services. I don't carry a Bible. <gasps> I'm a pastor and I don't carry a Bible. That's because it's on my phone, okay? So if you have a Bible app, like version or whatever, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. That's our passage today. And and Sarah, go ahead. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man who was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now, by a chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to place to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set up, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who has showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. This is the word of God. Hey, can we thank Sarah one more time? So good. So good. Now, friends, uh, especially for those of you that have been in church for a while, this, of course, is called the parable of the good... Samaritan. Okay, I can tell who's been in church and who's not. This is the parable of the good Samaritan. See, even if you actually didn't grow up in church, or maybe you're not into reading your Bible all that much, chances are you are still very familiar with this particular parable. You are still very familiar with the concept, at least, of the good Samaritan. Why? Because the Good Samaritan is literally, he's everywhere, right? Everywhere you turn, there's a Good Samaritan. Uh, case in point, I just said that you're allowed to use your phones in, in, in this church, right? Anytime you can have your phone on. So here's the deal. If you were to actually uh, take me at my word and Google the two words, Good Samaritan, right now on your phone. If you were to Google that right now, you know what you would find? You would find that there's a Good Samaritan hospital just two and a half miles from here. That's literally what you would find. Oh, and by the way, there's an acupuncturist, okay? This acupuncturist clinic called the Good Samaritan Wellbeing Center. That's also three miles away from here on Virgil, right? South Virgil. As well as a senior housing community nearby, also within four miles, called the Good Samaritan Society. So think about this now. A hospital, an acupuncturist, and senior living all called Good Samaritan something within a four-mile radius of where we are right now. Just where we're sitting right now. Think about that. How popular is the concept of the Good Samaritan, whether you're a believer or not? So what exactly is it? What exactly is it about this parable that just latches on to the hearts and minds of believers and unbelievers alike, right? What is it about this parable? Well, here's the thing. Before uh, we dive deep into this parable, what I want to do is I want to provide for you three certain guidelines or interpretational tools that will help you understand any parable found in Scripture. Does that make sense? I want to give you basically a grid uh, that you can use to interpret parables found in Scripture. As a matter of fact, one of these days I want to do a whole series on the parables of Jesus. But for right now, let me at least give you this grid so that moving forward, you yourself in your small 
small groups, in your own devotions, you can understand parables better and kind of grapple with these uh, parables a little bit better. So here are the three guiding principles for understanding parables. And, you know, I'm just coming out very plain Jane, okay? Nothing creative about this whatsoever, but it's going to be helpful. Number uh, Number one, the first thing is truth. Every parable has a central truth. Now, all parables in Scripture, you're going to find underlying truths laced within the story, laced within the parable. But always, 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 at least parables found in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially parables that Jesus shares, there's always, even though there's lots of truths in there, there's one central truth. So you can focus on other truths and you can, you can extrapolate and you can go on those different branches of truth, but there's always never, never, never sell yourself short of missing that one central particular truth. Does that make sense? There's always one central truth. The second thing that is in every single parable found throughout the New Testament is this. It's called a twist. All right? I call it a twist, right? There's some sort of shock value. There's some sort of surprise element. There's something that catches you off guard. And oh, by the way, if you're reading a parable that Jesus is sharing and you are somehow not shocked, you're somehow, whoa, that's a twist. You're somehow not like taken aback. Then you're either reading the parable wrong You're missing a key element of the parable or you've just glossed it over. You've heard it so many times. It's like the wallpaper, right? It's like you don't even notice it right now, right? So there's always a truth, a central truth. There's always a twist that you need to identify. And the third, perhaps the most important element of every single parable found in the Gospels, particularly those that Jesus shares, is this. There's a transformation element. In other words, what do I mean by that? I mean that the purpose of a parable is never just about information. Jesus isn't laying down these stories. He isn't laying down these parables so that you have uh, more and more head knowledge. This isn't a work report, right? This isn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, detailed metrics, Jesus, when he gives, when he shares these parables, when he preaches these parables, he is not concerned about information transfer. What he is concerned about is transformation. What he's concerned about is life change. Does that make sense? It's not about head knowledge. That's not the goal. Life change is the goal. That's why Jesus shares parables. That's why he tells these stories. So what are the three things? The first one is? The second is, last, transformation. Truth, twist, transformation. Turn to your neighbor and say, truth, twist, transformation. Awesome, awesome, so good. All right, now friends, if you can nail those three things, if you, every time you approach a parable in scriptures, if you have those three things in mind, then you will be where Jesus wants you to be. You'll be in the heart of the text. And you'll be able to understand and apply things better. So with that in mind, now let's attack, let's go unpack this parable that is before us today. First thing is truth, the central truth. Let's look at the central truth here. There are several uh, distinct and important truths about the passage that Sarah just read for us. We could glean all sorts of truth uh, from this parable. For instance, we could talk, we could talk about soteriology. 
That's just a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation, right? We could talk about that. After all, that's how this parable starts, right? This parable starts with this lawyer asking, actually asking is a, is a, is a, is a generous word. Uh, the scripture actually says this lawyer was testing. This lawyer was testing Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to what? To inherit eternal life. That's a soteriological question. Right? What, 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 how do I gain eternal life? Right? So we could talk about soteriology. We could talk about the doctrine of salvation. And that is one of the truths that is in this text. But that's not the main truth. Uh, uh, what, are, what are some other truths? What are some other avenues that we could tackle? We, we could tackle the origins of the golden rule. We see that clearly. We could tackle the infamous 17-mile stretch known as the road to Jericho. That's one avenue of truth uh, that we could uh, pursue. We could also tackle uh, religious and ceremonial laws or, or socioeconomic disparities and gentrification. Right? We could, we could uh, discuss the, the topic of compassion ministries and their place in our world. Right? These are all avenues of truth that we find in this parable. But they, none of those that I just mentioned are the one central truth that must be addressed. What is the one central truth that must be addressed in this parable? It is this. Everyone is your neighbor. Go ahead and jot that down. Everyone is your neighbor. That's the one central piece that we must address. See, don't forget what's really happening here, right? This lawyer was trying to test. Verse 25 says that he was trying to test Jesus. And he was trying to, why was he trying to test Jesus? Because he was trying to justify himself, says verse 29, right? So you have this lawyer, and he's deliberately about to test Jesus because he wants to justify himself. In other words, he's heard the things of Jesus, uh, but he doesn't like the things of Jesus. And he's trying to find a way out. He's trying to find a loophole out of the teachings of Jesus. He's trying to justify himself, says verse 29. And so he starts the, let's make no mistake about it, this is an interrogation. He starts the interrogation uh, with a question, how do I get eternal life? I've been hearing this guy preach and teach and talk about eternal life, the kingdom of God, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so let's just ask him, how do I get eternal life? And, and what is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is, love God and love your neighbor. That's what I've been saying this whole time. Everywhere I go, I've been saying, love God, Love your neighbor. In fact, you're a man of the law. You're a lawyer. You, 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 you should know the law and the great Shema of the Old Testament. And, and that is, it's found in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, so when you ask me, well, you know, what, what, what is the way towards eternal life? Like, duh, don't you know it? You should know it. You're a lawyer. You know it. you're a man of the law. Love God. Love your neighbor. And what is this man's response? <laughs> well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You, you see what's happening there, right? I, he knows the answer, right? And, and now he's trying to back out of it. See, right away we know that he's actually trying to weasel his way out of an inconvenience. See, there, there's no real interest in, in here at this moment in his heart for actually loving neighbors. He wants to back out of it. And, and so what does Jesus do? Jesus, knowing what's happening here, he knows what's happening. He starts and he's... He starts sharing a story. 
Jesus starts sharing a parable, right? He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't club him over the head with law. He doesn't make fun of him. He doesn't, he doesn't shame him. But he just starts telling a story. And our story picks up in verse 30 and says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers. He got mugged. This guy got jumped, right? He, he was going from one city to another. And in the middle of that, he got jumped, right? He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, friends, I want to stop here for a second. I want, to, I want you to picture what's happening here, right? Now, think about the scene that Jesus is painting. If someone, just think about your own life, right? Say you were walking from one end of the city to another or to another city, whatever, okay? And let's just say that in the middle of your walk, you come across a person who is exactly like a person described in this parable. This person is left naked, right? He's unconscious, uh, half dead. He's without material possessions, Right? Now, if there was a person who was naked, uh, unconscious, half dead, and left without material possessions, if there was a person whose every ethnic, religious, social, behavioral identifiers were all unknown, like the person in this passage, my question to you would be, who could this person be? Who could this person be? Well, the answer is, if there's a person who's unconscious, naked, can't tell, he's got no wallet, he's got no identification marks, behavior marks, is he rich, is he poor, is he, uh, his ethnic, his religion, this person could actually be anyone, right? This person, this person could be anyone, it could be everyone, and that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make here. That's precisely the point that Jesus is making, that this person could be anyone. So he stripped this person, illustratively speaking, in his story, he stripped this person of all identifying markers. And so this person could effectively be you, it could be me, it could be the person sitting next to you, in front of you, in back of you. This person could be everyone and anyone. Why? Because everyone and anyone is your neighbor. There's no one in this world who is not your neighbor. In other words, our central point, our central truth comes out here, and that is everyone is your neighbor. Turn to your friend and say, I'm a neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. And oh, by the way, this riffs beautifully perfectly with the idea from last week that we touched upon in Genesis chapter 1, which is the beginning of the city, uh, the theology of city, where, where we learned in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, God starts right off and he gives this, this theology of the city, as it were, right? Because we start in Genesis 1 with the city, and, or with the garden, and we end in Revelation 21 with the city. We talked about that last time. But right from the get-go, right from the back, in Genesis chapter 1, Jesus, God says basically that, you know what? We're the ones created in his image. 
that people are the only ones created in his image, that, that even a sunset or a skyline, no matter how beautiful these things may be, no matter how wonderful these things may be, they don't come close to the person sitting next to you. They don't come close to the homeless person on the street. Why? Because only people, only people are image bearers of God. Only people. And, and Christ died only for people. He didn't die for sunsets. He didn't die for the perfect cup of coffee. He didn't die for long walks on the beach. He didn't die for flowers in bloom. Christ died only for people. And so every single person you come in contact with is an image bearer of Christ. Every single person you come in contact with is someone that Christ gave his life for. And every single person you come in contact with is your neighbor. You know, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote this. He's wrote incredible things, just, just all, prolific writer, right? And one of his classics, In the Weight of Glory, he wrote this incredible uh, illustration. He, he wrote this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He concludes, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And all this, by the way, takes away any excuse that you could possibly have, that I could possibly have, and that this lawyer could possibly have for not loving everyone. See, I mean, some of you might be thinking, right? Uh, oh, you know what? Listen, Pastor, I, I live up in the foothills, okay? I, I live far away from L.A. I, I live in the San Fernando Valley or down in South Bay. So, so you're coming in really hard about this loving L.A. thing. Like, it's just, yeah, I got my own problems in, in South Bay, right? Guys, can I, just, can I just, like, take off my pastor hat here and just be, like, totally just, if you and I were sitting at a, in a restaurant, just table to table. I live in Orange County, okay? I, I along with, with some other uh, families in our church, two of them are elder families, right? The elders in our church and, and a whole bunch of other people. We, we live down in Orange County, oh, the OC, the OC, all right? Like, like Irvine, don't, don't, don't hold that against me, all right? No, don't call me soft, okay? But whatever, all right? So like, what do, like honestly, what do I have to do with LA, right? Like, I might be losing some street cred here, but you might be thinking, you know, like, well, you, you, you don't know L.A. Like, and yeah, why should I even care about L.A.? Why should I care about L.A.? I mean, I got it nice and easy. Why don't I just live in my own little uh, Orange County, you know, nice, perfect little orange bubble, right? Like, why don't I just live there with these people, Right? That's in Orange County. Those are all, all, all Orange County people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This, most of them are from L.A. But anyways, <laughs> that's our new Orange County campus. Pray, pray, pray. Just, just join me in prayer, multi-site. Anyways, okay? So like, like, 
the easiest thing for me to do is to just live in my perfect little orange bubble, right? That's so easy for me to do. But again, you know why I can't do that? You, you know why there's something inside of me that just, that just balks against anything about that? It's because theologically and even mathematically, that's off the table. That doesn't make sense. Because as we learned last week, uh, the most densely populated area in America, when, when the most densely populated area in America is 50 miles away from my house, you best believe my understanding of neighbor needs to increase. When there are 4 million image bearers of God whom Jesus died for, tightly concentrated in a mere 503 square mile radius in a certain corner of the world, well then you best believe my view of exactly who my neighbor is must expand. See, maybe it's time to have our hearts grow deeper and wider as we grow deeper and wider in the things of God, amen? Maybe that's what he's doing. Can you think a new thought? That's the challenge we have in this parable. Again, really what's happening here is we're learning about the theology of city. We're learning about the theology of city in this passage. One of my mentors, Dr. Tim Keller, a brilliant preacher and practitioner extraordinaire, who's been pastoring a church in Manhattan for the greater part of three, four decades. Uh, he puts it this way, for anyone who might put themselves at arm's length from the city. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like some people like hate the city. They don't like the city. Oh, I like the countryside. I like beaches and stuff like that. I like all that stuff too. But we can't, we can't, we can't resist the power of the city. And, 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 and for the person that does, he gives this an admonishment. He says this. These are his words, not mine. He says, those people, they, they forget God's reasoning with Jonah. Old Testament prophet Jonah, which says in Jonah chapter 4, it says, should I not have compassion on the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? We have 4 million, by the way. Jonah was getting rebuked for kind of stiff-arming 120,000. We have 4 million. Should I not have compassion on the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. Keller continues, God isn't saying Jonah should love urban life and experience. That the, we're not saying that you must be urbane, right? He is asking how Jonah could fail to be moved by the size of the spiritual need. In other words, is your heart so callous? Are you so far from the things of God and the heartbeat of God that you can't see the tremendous spiritual need in 120,000 people? Strike that. Four million people? Keller continues, and those indifferent to the city forget the importance of the city. I, I love this. I love this. He, he says, cities are accumulators of the energies of culture. If, oh gosh, just, you know, this is where, okay. If Christians aren't willing to live and work and I would add do church in the cities, then we shouldn't complain that the culture is reflecting less and less of the Bible's wisdom. 
<laughs> in other words, you ain't got no skin in the game, don't complain. Those who hold together, he concludes, all the Bible's insights about cities should love the city itself, not just the experience through witness and sacrificial service for the well-being of our what? Neighbors. Of our neighbors. The central truth in this passage is that everyone is your neighbor. There is no one who is not your neighbor. And if you are living in or near Los Angeles, guess what? You got a lot of neighbors. You got more neighbors than anyone else in this country. And so for whatever reason, God has blessed you and stewarded you and me with the responsibility and the blessing and the opportunity to be blessed and to be a blessing to our neighbors. Amen? This is why we hashtag love LA. Okay? That's what this is all about. So now, now for the twist. Okay, everybody give me a little twist. Give me, oh, oh that felt good. Oh my gosh, my back. I think it's through my back. Anyways, okay. Give yourself a little twist there, all right? Watch what happens next. Here comes the twist. Verse 31. Now by chance, a who? A what? One more time, church. Now by chance, a who? A priest. Dustin, why are you looking at me? Why are you, I feel so condemned right now. Why? Now by chance, a priest, who, a priest is a religious leader, Right? Priest is someone who's expected to be close to God and the things of God and the heart of God. Now, by chance, a priest came upon that person and, and watch what happens because surely that priest went and go help that person, right? Surely that's what's happening, right? That's what's going to happen, right? But, but it says here, no, actually, priest was going down that road and when he saw him, so he did see him. It's not that he didn't see him. When he saw him, he, he actually passed by on the other side. So, so there, there, just imagine this is happening. There, there's a guy here who's half naked, he's beaten, he's been mugged, he's been jumped in. And like, it's not that the priest didn't see. The priest saw him and was just like, all right, I'm just going to pass by on the other side of the road. The next verse says, verse 32 so likewise, a who? A, a, a Levite. See, Levites, for those who, who may not know, Levites actually helped priests. They were like worship leaders inside of the temple. They came from the line of Levi. And so, and so surely, surely, surely a worship leader is going to help a guy, right? Because they're all, they're emo, they're tied into their emotions, right? Right? Surely that's what's going to happen, right? So likewise, a, a Levi came, and, and when he came to the place, he saw, and what, what? He passed by on the other side as well. So wait, a priest saw? A worship leader saw? But they went to the other side of the road and just passed by? Now, if you grew up in church, you might be thinking right now, well, Pastor Tom, 
don't you know? <laughs> the Old Testament has these ceremonial laws of purity. Don't you know that? What seminary did you go to? Well, they teach you that. And so these, these religious leaders, they weren't allowed to, like, touch corpses. The priests had a six-foot, six-cubic rule. They weren't allowed to go near something that because they, they would contract impurities and they wouldn't be allowed to lead worship. Did you know that? Well, you know, I just praise the Lord. I'm glad you were paying attention in Sunday school. That's great. That's wonderful. But here's the reality. The reality is Scripture specifically mentions that these two religious leaders were coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In other words, Scripture makes it a point to say, hey, you know what? These two religious leaders, they were coming, they were at Jericho, uh, they were at Jerusalem where the temple is. And they were going down to Jericho. They were where the temple was in Jerusalem, but they were going down to Jericho. In other words, friends, church was over. The service ended. These guys were off the clock. So now you see their true selves. See what I'm saying? No one was looking. They weren't at the temple anymore. They left the temple and they were going down. Church service was over. This was not about some people righteously adhering to any ceremonial laws of purity for the betterment of worship. No, no, don't even play that. That's not what was happening here. See, the bottom line is two religious leaders, two, if I could contextualize it, church staff, if you will, like a pastor and a worship leader. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm not, you know... Just like, imagine if you had two church staff, right? A campus pastor and a worship pastor, right? Imagine if you had these two guys and they saw someone in obvious and desperate need. And what do they do? Well, they saw him. That wasn't the problem. They kind of walked over, but then they, okay, went on to the other side of the street. And pass them by. But now, now you're ready for the twist. Verse 33 says this. But a who? A Samaritan. Uh, let me just pause right here for a second. Samaritans were people from Samaria, right? No big deal. Uh, but the important thing here is that Samaria was, a, was widely considered a hopeless and godless place. So if you were from Samaria, you were a hopeless, godless person. See, priests came from the line of Abraham, right? Uh, Levites came from the line of Levi. Abraham and Levi, those are like the two studs of the Jews. Those are like the two studs of antiquity. Those are like, that's like purebreds right there, right? But Samaritans? Are you kidding me? Priests and Levites, those are our kind of people. Those are church people. Those are good people. Right? But Samaritans? Are you kidding me? Those are filthy, good-for-nothing, bottom-feeding, godless, hopeless people. At least that was the prevailing thought of the day. And <clears throat> this sort of cultural shock 
that should be taking place whenever we read this passage. This sort of surprise, this twist, it's, it's lost on us today, right? Because we don't understand contextually uh, the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of Levi and the, and, 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 and the contextual kind of prejudice towards Samaria. And so I was thinking, like, how do I communicate this uh, in, in the year 2019 to us? And you know what it would be like? The closest I could come up with is this. If we were to liken it to something like a runaway black slave in Mississippi, in Georgia, in Tennessee, in the 1800s of America, coming across an unconscious and incredibly vulnerable white slave owner on a deserted road. That's what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Can you imagine being a runaway slave in the 1800s down in the deep south, making your way on a deserted road where no one travels and coming up across a white, unconscious, naked slave owner? What, what do you think you would do? And so it's with that in mind that we venture forward. And scripture says, well, that slave, so to speak, that, that Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, that, that person that was beat up, mugged. And when he saw him, he had, what's the word there? Compassion. Splanga kenozomai is the Greek word. Splanga kenozomai in the Greek means from the bowels. Like when we think of heart, we think of like, we point to our chest, we tap our chest, right? No, 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 no. The, the Greek understanding is from the bowels, deep within your body. It, it, it's believed that deep within the bowels, in the recesses of your body, in the deepness and the depths of your bowels, that's where your heart would reside. And so scripture says that this godless person found it deep within his heart to love. And have compassion. And now watch what this love, it wasn't sentimental. Compassion is not just sentimental. Compassion makes you move. Compassion is not a nice, soft, endearing heart. Oh, feels so good. Compassion makes you move. Watch how compassion made this godless, hopeless man move. Verse 34. The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds. He touched him. Pouring on oil and wine, he anointed him. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him into his car. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, what is the implication? If it's the next day, he was there with him all night. That's the implication. It wasn't just like he drop off and see a piece. Here's the ER. No, no, no. He, he did all that, stayed with him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. That's roughly two days worth of wages. So he, he dug in his own pocket and forked over two days worth of wages, roughly speaking, 
And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, hey, friend, can you, can you just take care of my neighbor here? And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. In other words, this isn't a set it and forget it. This isn't a, I just filled up my box and then here I brought my box, peace. This isn't a, I just gave up a Saturday, I gave up a Friday, whatever, peace. No, this is not a one and done. This was his posture, this was his attitude, I'm coming back. For whatever reason, God's placed you in front of me and gosh, I'm compelled. I have compassion. It's from deep within my bowels. I have to do something about it. So I'm going to move. I'm going to move towards your healing. I'm coming back. Now, friends, just think about this. Think about all the trouble that this godless, hopeless man went through to show deep inner bowels compassion towards a complete stranger who was his neighbor. Samaritan didn't know him. Yet he gave himself up sacrificially and generously. No strings attached. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like someone you know? Meanwhile, the religious guys, what did they do? The ones who were at church all day and serving and, and forwarding the purposes of God, what did they do? Nothing. Nothing. And so here's the the twist in in plain black and white. I want you to jot it down. You might be close to God's work, but still so far from his heart. That's a trap. You actually might be close to his work and experiencing the shadows of blessing and anointing, but still so far so far from his heart. It's so humbling. One of the verses that I cannot shake, it's one of these verses that haunt me. I know when we talk about scripture, we talk about it in these metaphors of kindness and goodness and good feels and all that. And I have those. I, I, I get those feels too. But there are often passages that haunt me, right? Like, oh, I just want to, I wish that didn't exist. This is one of those passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't what? Fall. You think these religious leaders thought they were standing firm? I bet you they did. They were up in the temple doing God's work. Important work. All eyes on them. Bringing people to God. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. <clears throat> Friends, to be honest, I actually think that there's this dynamic in place because we live in a broken world and it's just the reality. I think the longer you've actually been going to church, I think the more you've read your Bible, I think the longer you've been living that good Christian life, Maybe you've been serving God. Maybe you've been volunteering. Maybe you've been giving generously. I think the longer that you've been doing those things, all those things are great, and you should be doing those things. But I think that actually the longer you've done those things, the more likely it is for you to be trapped in a mentality 
and substitute the good work of God for the intimate heart of God. I think the more and more you, you find yourself in that place, the more and more you need to heed the wisdom of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Just like these two religious leaders that Jesus is making out as an example. These two leaders, they could have benefited from the truth of 2 Corinthians. Very humbling. Which then brings us to our last point, which is the most important because it's a point about transformation. Because if you don't do this point, everything is information. So you gotta do this point for it to come out and come into fruition the way that God wants it to. Transformation. Did you notice how this parable ends? This is amazing. Because without the grid, you don't, you don't really see it. But verse 36 says, which of these three? Jesus says, okay, now uh, here's the situation. All three people face the same situation. But which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Right? And verse 37 says, I love this. Again, this is one of those awkward moments in Scripture that I love. Verse 37, the lawyer says, the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even give the black and white answer, which he's so good at giving black and white answers to, but he's not going to give black and white answers to this. He says, he can't even, he hates the Samaritan so much. Those people were so despised, he can't even say the Samaritan. He says, uh, well, the, the, the one who did the good stuff. Uh, the, the one who showed mercy. Which of these three do you think, uh, which of these three examples uh, was the good neighbor? Uh, th th that guy. And Jesus, so faithful, so gracious, says to him, you know what? You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. See, this is not about information. If you, if you attack the parables, trying to gain more truth, so to speak, more facts, right? You, you're totally missing it. The parables are not about information transfer. The parables are about life transformation, about life transformation change. Jesus is all about life change. He's not about pouring more information. He's not a professor. Could he profess? Could he be a professor? Absolutely. He is truth incarnate. But he's, he didn't come as a professor. He came as what? A savior, a redeemer, a healer. He's all about life change. And here's that transformation piece for any one of you who has ears to hear. It's simply this. It's the words of Jesus. You go. You go and do likewise. You go and you be compassionate. You go. And when you see someone in need, don't pass them by. You go and you be a neighbor. Why? Because Jesus was the first compassionate and good neighbor to you and to me. Jesus was the first one to take his time and pay out of his own pocket, as it were, to give to us first. See, friends, if you 
If you don't remember anything about this message, just remember this. I'm about to say it right now, okay? If you, if you forget everything about this message, just at least remember this. Christianity is never about behavior modification. That's not what Christianity is. It's not about changing just the things that you do. Christianity is not about behavior modification. Christianity is about life transformation. Does that make sense? Jesus is not about behavior modification. Jesus is about life transformation. I'm not saying behavior modification is bad, but behavior modification is not Christianity. It's something, but it's not Christianity. It might be religion. It might be discipline. It might be cultural values. It might be the way that you were brought up. Behavior modification might be the things that you change about the way that you do things or, or, or how you do things or what things you do. Those are not bad things in inherently of themselves. But that is not inherently Christian. Christianity is not behavior modification. Christianity is life transformation. It's not that you are a bad person that God is trying to make now good to modify your behavior. No, no, no. The gospel is you are a dead person. You are dead. In your sin, you are dead. And Christ brought you to life. That's life transformation. It's not that you were bad and he's trying to make you good. No, no, no. You were dead and he's trying to make you alive. The parables, the gospels, the scriptures, Jesus Christ, they are all about life transformation, not behavior modification. Again, we love, we love because he first loved us. I love because when I was most unlovable, he still loved me. And that changed me. And that changes me. And so now I want to love back. And so in very small, small, puny, but practical ways, what that might mean for us collectively as a church is just like we filled the, you know, all the volunteer spots for LA Food Bank and Lincoln Heights Health Fair yesterday. We're now looking to do the same. We want to keep on doing the same. And these are just like little spark plugs, right? Like when the series is over, we want to keep, we want to develop a habit of doing these things, so to speak, not because of behavior modification, but because of life transformation. But we recognize that sometimes it takes these spark plugs. Sometimes it takes these jump starts to actually, okay, get us in that habit. Get us in the, okay, maybe that's how we're blessed. That's how we're touched. That's how we receive the love of God. And so we're now looking for, to do that uh, for nearly 300 uh, spots between next uh, Saturday's uh, three outreaches. We've got the Children's Hunger Fund, the World Impact, uh, as well as Neighborhood Beautification, as well as the following week at the Union Rescue Mission, right? In addition to these four projects or so, uh, we're also planning to assemble 4,000 hygiene kits right here after each service next week. So after the 9 o'clock service and after the 11 o'clock service next Sunday, so make sure that you come next Sunday, uh, we're going to collectively, we want 100% participation. We recognize, hey, some of you, you got kids, they're in sports and stuff like that, or maybe you wanted to give but you couldn't give, but we want to give an opportunity for everyone to be a blessing and for everyone to be blessed. So after, after service, we're going to, literally, we're going to try to practice what we preach and assemble 4,000 kids. It's going to be a mess. I don't know how it's going to happen, but anyway, we're going to give it a try, Okay. 
And that's going to happen uh, next week. And we're also trying to raise money. You know this. We, uh, Pastor David, we talked about this. We're, we're trying to, uh, we're, we're, we're basically, we're trying to give away $10,000 to our local ministry partners, right? All in Jesus' name. No strings attached. It's, it's not about us. Our name doesn't have to be on it. But there are so many worthy, Jesus-glorifying uh, outreach ministries out there that we just want to come alongside of and be like, hey, we see you, and we want to be a part of that. We just love you guys. We just love you guys. Amen? Jesus loved us first. He is the first one who reached out to us in our most vulnerable and helpless state. And so now may the love of God compel us to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by this message, we hope you'll share it with a friend and subscribe to our podcast. Or best of all, come visit us at church. For directions, service times, and more info, check out newstorychurch.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon.